All right, Judges chapter 3. We went through the book of Judges about a couple years ago, and, and this was just one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I wanted to, to go through it again. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in that chair. So we're going to be on page 202 in that black Bible. 202. We're going to be in Judges 3, chapter 3, verses 7 through 30. But I'm just going to read verses 7 through 11. So if you will, as we always do, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Verse 7 of Judges 3, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rashathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rashathim eight years. Verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othnel, the son of Kinez, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rasathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rasathim. So the land that had... Uh, rest for 40 years. Then Othnel, the son of Kenzai, died. Again, you guys may be seated. One of the greatest surprise attacks in American history happened on Christmas Eve on December 25th, 1776. Who led that attack? Shout it out. George Washington, all right, good, we know our history here, that's right. George Washington, the Continental Army, crossed the Delaware River, it was, it was icy, it was choked, the, the, the Redcoats weren't expecting this, and this was part of Washington's plan, to come under the, the, the gaze of night, to come under that uh, blanket of night, to a surprise attack around Trenton, New Jersey, about 1,400 soldiers of the garrison in the British Army, and they did it. It was successful. They won the battle. And Washington hoped that this, visit, this victory of the surprise attack would, would bring hope to the Continental Army, and that others would come and join their forces to, again, um, for the American Revolutionary War to win it. And they did. And there's a famous painting that we have, we see, is George Washington at the front of the bow of the boat standing, and we see that. Now it's just a Geico commercial, um, but, but I know, millennials these days, some people probably actually think that's the... the Anyways, we won't even go there. So this morning, we want to look at a couple surprise attacks we'll see in Judges chapter 3, where um, they were incredibly effective, um, in which also uh, the effectiveness, they, they rallied the nation of Israel around them to win their freedom from two brutal kings. And it's because of the Lord's grace and mercy. The people were rebelling, but because of the Lord's grace and mercy and His compassion for His people, He rescued them out of this bondage. And and we will see that this, is, this happens from a likely de- a deliverer that we just read about, Othnel, Othniel, and then also an unlikely de- uh, de- deliverer we'll read is Ehud. And the good news for you and me is that the, sto- is the Lord still, he, he still rescues His people physically, but more importantly, spiritually, He rescues us. So we're going to dive into Judges chapter 3. And first we see Othniel, the, the likely de- deliverer. And again, this is in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. So as we look at verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
They forgot the Lord their God and served Baal and Asheroth. And as we, if you guys were around with us a couple years ago and we went through the book of Judges, you know there's a, there's a rhythm that, that, that flows throughout the book of Judges. And the rhythm is this. It's uh, the people of Israel would rebel. The, the Lord would then bring judgment upon the people of Israel. Then Israel would see their sin. The, the people would see their sin, how they've forgotten the Lord and ran from him. They would repent. And then the Lord would send a rescuer, a deliverer. And then finally, we see at the end, there would be a, a peaceful time or a restful time for the people of Israel. That was the rhythm in which took us through the book of Judges, in which we will see here in these two stories. We see in verse 7 that they says, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what is the evil? It doesn't give us exactly what the evil was, uh, but we get a good idea in verse 7 where it says, they forgot the Lord their God. And then they served Baal and Asheroth, two gods and goddesses of that time. So they turned from the Lord. They turned their hearts, they turned their worship from the Lord and, and started worshiping the, the gods of the culture around them. And, and we call this sin idolatry. This is not unique to, obviously, the ancient culture. It's, it, we understand this problem with idolatry. We are idolaters. Uh, Calvin says our hearts are, are, are constantly producing idol factories. We're constantly producing idols. Our hearts are idol factories. So we know the exact issue that Israel was tempted and faced with because we walk through it today as well. Let me give you a, a definition of idolatry. Uh, is this, it's, it's giving allegiance to someone or something for ultimate well-being in life instead of giving allegiance to the Lord and trusting Him for the ultimate well-being. Let me say that again. Idolatry is giving our allegiance, our lives, our hearts, our minds, to serve someone or something for ultimate well-being in life instead of giving allegiance to the Lord and trusting Him for the ultimate well-being. I love that definition of idolatry because of the words allegiance, because of the words well-being. They're, they're clear, they're lucid, they give us, there's some weight behind it. When we hear those words that um, allegiance or well-being, they, 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 they put some weight behind it. Allegiance means to be loyal to a person, country or group, submit, give your life, order your whole life around something or someone. Ultimate well-being. And the reason why we do this is, is because we, we believe that that person or that thing will, will give us total joy, will give us total happiness, will give us total peace. We, we can't function unless that thing is in our life. Where is possibly the idolatry in your life? This is a battle that we all have. It could be revolve around money and success and status. It could be revolve around your workplace. It could revolve around relationships. It could revolve around comfort or a political party. The children of Israel were worshiping Baal and, and other goddesses, and literally to the point where they were sacrificing their children. That's what idolatry does. It makes gives sacrifices to hurt those around you. And it's the same with us. And so where might in your life might you by replacing God and giving your heart to someone or someone else? And you might, if you have children, you might be sacrificing your children. Now, obviously not physically, but through neglect, through not spending time with them. That's what idolatry does. It pulls us away from the people around us that we love, in particular, first and foremost, the Lord. 
Now, not all these things are bad in and of themselves, right? There's nothing wrong with having some cabbage. There's nothing wrong with having a great job. There's nothing wrong with being in a relationship. There's nothing wrong with, you know, um, with these things. It's when they become ultimate, when you start to look for them as your ultimate well-being and you give and order your life around these things and not the Lord's, that's when they can become destructive. This was the sin of the people of Israel, and it can be the sin of us. So therefore, we see in verse 8 that the Lord judges them. And he brings about retribution. And then we see that the people see their sin. In verse 9, they repent. Look at the 3, 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they repented. Then we see that the Lord hears their prayers and he answers them with mercy and love. In verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And the deliverer name was Othniel. Othniel. And this isn't the first time we read about him. He's in Judges uh, chapter 1. And we see that Othniel is a likely deliverer. The reason why he's a likely deliverer is because he has some war history. He's an ex-soldier. He's already captured a city and led uh, a crew of army of soldiers to capture a city in chapter 1 of Judges. And so we see he's a likely warrior. He's battle-tested. He's an ex-soldier. And so the Lord uses him to um, redeem and deliver his people from this king. But there's something else I want us to notice about him. And this is where every one of us can maybe relate to him. It says this. Look at verse 10. It says, he was a spirit-led man. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. You see, as we know, as we study our scriptures, is that in the Old Testament, it wasn't the norm for every follower of God, of Yahweh, to have the spirit of God with him. That was a gift that, that the Lord anointed with individuals with throughout the Old Testament narrative. But when we get to the New Testament, that is the norm. That when someone repents and trusts in Christ, the the Holy Spirit then comes and dwells in us, and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So every one of us in here who is repenting and trusting in Christ, is a believer in Christ, has the Holy Spirit, is, is led by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you and me, but not so much the case in the Old Testament. But by God's grace, when he raised up Othniel, he gave him his spirit to give him the power, the ability, the wisdom to lead the children of Israel out of judgment. And so when the Lord saves people, in the Old Testament and New Testament, he does it through men and women who are guided, led, and empowered by his Spirit. That's what we want to pull from this. That's what we want to notice about Othniel. And again, we see this theme throughout the Old Testament. David in 1 Samuel 16 says, The Spirit was a Lord, um, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. We know that David became the greatest warrior, the greatest king in Israel's history. As we go to the New Testament, we see this theme also come to full fruition of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He goes out and proclaims and, uh, the, the gospel. And we see Thousands of people repent and trust and come to Christ. We see it happen to Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and at his baptism. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and empowered him for ministry. And it's the same for you and me today. The Lord will save his people physically, but more importantly, spiritually, through those who are led and guided and directed by his Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1-8, we're all familiar with this verse. It says this, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my what? My witnesses. See, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the Lord's people after the gospel, and he, and he gives them the Spirit, it propels your life to be a witness. Now, it's the same Spirit of God that led David. It's the same Spirit of God that led Othniel. It's the same Spirit of God that led John the Baptist and Jesus into, his, into their ministries. It is the same Spirit. 
that empowers us. And every day, you and I have the ability to be led by the Spirit or not led to by the Spirit. Every day, it's a choice in that Spirit to be a witness for Christ or not to be a witness for Christ. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does when it comes upon a believer and empowers him. It does many things. The fruit of the Spirit, it causes us to love more, to to have self-control, to be joyful, to be gentle, etc., to be faithful. That's part of it, but it also has something else. And as for us, it it impels us to be witnesses for Christ. I love what one said. I, I don't know who actually said this quote the first time, but it said this. It said, our lives might be the only Bibles that a person ever reads. Our lives might be the only Bibles that a person ever reads. And that's what we're talking about here. Your life is a witness to Christ. And I don't know about you, but I love the new believers when they first come to Christ, right? We, we all know how that. Their life is contagious. They're just running around telling everyone. They have no, no, no understanding that this is going to be offensive to a lot of people. They just, they just see the joy. They feel the joy. They experience the joy of now that they were walking in darkness and now they're saved. That they, they have it, all this sin and now it's all forgiven as Jesus from the rest. They are new creation in Christ. They have all this new information and understanding about who they are and their identity and they just go out and tell everybody. It's contagious. It's infectious. This is what the Holy Spirit leads people to do if you're in Christ. It shouldn't just be a thing that we do when we just come to know Christ. This should be the characteristic of our life throughout Christ. Now we're going to have some peaks and we're going to have some valleys, but as we look over the overarching length of our lives, what should characterize our lives from birth in Christ to death is that we are a witnessing people, that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we have a passion for the gospel. Why? Because as I just said, we recognize that the Lord sent someone to share the gospel to us. And the Lord used that to save us. And so how much more will the Lord then use you to carry on that mission, to carry on that message? The Holy Spirit empowers you and me to be witnesses, ambassadors for Christ. And this is what Othniel's life is illustrating for us. The, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and it raised him up. Now, again, his was a physical rescue, but mainly for us, it's a spiritual rescue. The bondage that we are under is under our own flesh, our own sin, and under the culture of the world's thoughts. That's what is ruling us outside of Christ, and that's why we need the Spirit of God to break into our hearts so that we can be saved. The Lord, again, uses you and me to do that. We see in verse 11, this is exactly what happened. They were saved, so the land had rested for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenza, died, which takes us to the second deliverer, the unlikely deliverer. Othniel was the likely deliverer. He was the warrior. He was the soldier. Now we see the unlikely deliverer in verses 12 through 31. So after 40 years of peace, we see we come to verse 12. And the cycle begins all over again. Look at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sends then judgment and retribution like he always does. Again, this is the rhythm. And the Lord strengthened this king Eglon, king of Moab, against himself. And the people served under bondage for 18 years. So after 18 years, the the people saw their sin. It took them 18 years to finally repent, but they did repent. And in the end, the Lord shows mercy by sending 
a deliverer. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, I want to pause real quick because right now we want to see and resonate with Othniel and Ehud and how we can resonate them. But some of us in here, maybe all of us in here, also need to resonate with the people of God. Maybe you're in here right now and, and your life has maybe uh, been characterized. You're a follower of Christ. You repent. You've trusted in Christ. But maybe over the, the, this season, it, your, your life has been characterized by rebellion against the Lord. And, and what this does is, is Israel is a great way and shows us a, a way of repentance. It's, it's something that we should take a page out of their own book. Hey, we see our rebellion. I see my rebellion. And what do they do? They repent. They come back to the Lord. And that's the same with you and me. When, when we drift off into sin and rebellion, we walk away from the Lord. This is the gracious news of the gospel. That he doesn't shun us. He doesn't cut us off. He sends people, individuals, messages to, to break into your heart say, to come back, repent of your sin. And when you do, I forgive you because I love you. So maybe that's some of you in here. Maybe today is just the Lord said, today is the day just to repent and come back and see the Lord graciously embrace you as his son and daughter because he loves you. Back to the Ehud. Now, the heading of the section, again, is Ehud, the unlikely deliverer. Now, why was he unlikely? What, 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 where do we see? Why, what's the reason? Why is he an unlikely deliverer? Well, it gives us the answer. It says this, he was an unlikely deliverer because he was left-handed. Right? How many of you guys all picked that up? Right, no. Through study, you figure this out. That back in this culture, if you were left-handed... People thought there was something wrong with you, right? There's something wrong with you, that you were not normal. Because everything in that culture was was made for right-handed people. Do we have any left-handed people in here? Go ahead and raise your hand. You're all all raising your left hand. See, I raised my right hand because I'm right-handed. You guys are all raising your left hand, right? And it's surely the same way today. Wouldn't you agree, you left-handed people, that you live in a right-handed world? Now, again, I'm not left-handed, so I had to do some research on this, on, on, on what this looks like. But let me, let me give you some ways in which we as right-handed people, we don't even think about it because we're right-handed. But here are some thoughts of, of how it's difficult being left-handed. One, taking tests. If you're back in school, in high school, college, middle school, taking multiple-choice tests. What size were the answers always on the questions? Always on the right side of the page, right? So for you left-handers, you always covered up the question and the answers on the page, Right? And so that's a difficult thing. Scissors, something as simple as cutting scissors. The blades are for right-handed people. So it's difficult for you to cut. You're going to be off a, you know, a quarter inch or a, a one-eighth of an inch on, on your cutting on your lines because the way the blades are set up. Um, here's, here's a good one. You guys, well, most of you might have done this this morning, zipping up your pants, right? I mean, it's, it's for left-hand, it's for right-handers, right? So that's difficult. The FBI just did this. They uh, they, they issue Glock pistols to the FBI. Well, a third of the FBI agents are left-handed, so Glock just started now putting ambidextrous stuff for left-handed or right-handed on a slide lock or mag release. It's a right-handed world. And so this is why Ehud was an unlikely deliverer, because he was left-handed. I mean, even in Scripture, 
Right-handed is the, the, the hand to be praised. As we read examples of Scripture, the right hand of strength, the right hand of power, the right hand of blessing, the right hand of salvation, the right hand of protection. It's a right-handed world. It is what it is, right? So again, when you put this together, this is why this detail is so important. Now, this detail where it says he was a left-handed man, literally it means this, that he was unable to use his right hand. That he, he probably was either paralyzed uh, or when, from, from an accident, or he had a birth defect from birth. But he was a left-handed man. So we see how the story now flushes out with that important detail and why he's unlikely. Verse 16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubic in length, about 18 inches, and he bought it on his right thigh under his clothes. So we see that Ehud believed in concealed carry back then. All right? In verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. So Ehud gets this assignment or volunteers to take the offering or the tribute to the king, but he also has a different agenda. So he fashions this little knife made to to stab, and, and here we see that Ehud was not only going to take the tribute, but he had again another plan to assassinate and free his people from slave and bondage. Now Eglon was a very fat man, another important detail. Uh, the reason why, as we will see, but when you take a thought of Eglon, a very fat man, think like Jabba the Hutt, right? Or, or King of the Goblins from Lord of the Rings, that kind of guy. Verse 18, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, the offering, he sent away the people who carried it. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgad and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded them, silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence, verse 20, and he had came to him, and as he was sitting alone in the cool of the roof of his chamber, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. The king arose from his seat. And here we see the brilliance of Ehud and his plan. Now I want to give a little little love to the left-handed people in here. Left-handed people have a higher percentage of being smarter than right-handed people, right? Left-handed people are generally have a higher percentage of being a genius and smarter. So there's some love for you left-handed people in here in case you're feeling a little discriminated against. All right. But again, the brilliance of his plan. First, uh, the concealed the knife on his right thigh, right? Because back then, if you're right-handed, most warriors, soldiers, carry their swords, their weapons on their left side because they're right-handed. They would grab a cross. So, so as... As Ehud is, is, is going to the king, he has nothing on his right side. So the king and all, the, all of his um, guards, they don't think anything of this guy because everything on his right side is good. But his stuff was on his left side. So he concealed the knife. Second, um, Ehud has probably been studying Eglon. He knows this is his fascination with uh, the Da Vinci Code, so to speak, these, these secret messages that he wanted to, to, again, that Eglon was you know, privy to. And so he kind of said, I got a secret message to you. He's playing into Eglon's uh, personality. And finally, he said that this message was from God. And when you see that, that's why you see that detail where it says, and he arose from his seat. So when a, person, when, a, when a person would come give a message, the people receiving that message would stand up. And so Eglon being this very fat man, he had to get him to stand up so he could be precise with his knife. And so he said, I have a message from him. So it causes Eglon to stand up. Just a brilliant, brilliant plan. And then we see in verse 21, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his left thigh, and thrust it into the belly. 
Here's the other thing. We'll pause right here. You've you, you got to love the Bible because of its realism, its rawness, its grittiness. He ex- explains the Holy Spirit had the, the writer write down exactly what happened. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Back to then. And the hilt or the end of the handle of the knife also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors, the roof of the chamber behind him, and locked him. I, I was like, how can I explain this to people so they could get a visual? So I want to show you a picture of what it might have looked like. Just kidding. I'm not going to show you guys a picture of what it might Right? Because we don't need any more commentary. The Bible does a great job in explaining what, what happened. And I don't need anyone dry heaving in here. If Daniel was here, he would definitely be dry heaving. But verse 24, it goes on. And there's some humor, dark humor in here, but there's humor in here. I'm about to see. When he had gone, the servants came in. And when they saw that the doors of the roof of the chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool of the chambers. Why, why did they think he was going to the bathroom? Because of the, the smell that they could smell. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. Why? Because you don't interrupt the king when he's on his throne, right? You don't want to do that. But when he still didn't open the doors of the roof of the chamber, they took the key, opened it, and they saw their Lord dead. Then we see in 26 through 30 of chapter 3, Ehud escapes while the delay. He gathers the men of Israel. The men of Israel wouldn't have followed a left-handed man. But because Ehud did this, they, they, they saw that the hand of the Lord was on him. So therefore, they followed this unlikely deliverer. They went to war and won. Now, there's a lot of things that we could learn from this story, but let me highlight two. Because all the stories in the Old Testament, as Jesus says, point to me. Point to me. So first, what we can understand here is first, Ehud, the unlikely deliverer, points us to Jesus, the ultimate unlikely deliverer. Ehud, the unlikely deliverer, points us to the ultimate unlikely deliverer. Isaiah 53.2 says this about Jesus and the, the deliverer. This one who would come from the the line of David that would save the people from their sin. This is what it said about him. Described him, Isaiah 53, 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There was nothing special about Jesus. When he walked into history, the Jews were looking for a military leader to, to, to rescue them from the oppression of Rome. Someone like a, a Joshua, someone like a Moses. They were the Romans. The Romans looked for their deliverers throughout the years through empires and through senate, through world leaders, through a political arena. The Greeks, uh, they, they put an emphasis on their salvation and leaders that they will look to by wisdom and knowledge. Think like uh, professors, Nobel Prize peace winner, tech gurus, smart people. Those were the things, those are the people that these cultures looked to to save them, that they were the likely characteristics of a deliverer. But when Jesus comes, he comes in an unexpected way. He, he came as a baby in a manger to a carpenter's family 
from the smallest of small towns in Bethlehem. Just everyday people, no wealth, no power, no influence, or no real wisdom. Nobody was ready. No one expected the Savior to come, especially through dying on the cross like a criminal. But yet Jesus was the ultimate unlikely deliverer. I mean, you have conversations with guys and you talk about Jesus. And, and usually when, when I have a conversation with an individual and, and, and start talking about Jesus, how he's the great and ultimate deliverer, they just look at me and it's like, well, if he's so great, just look at the world around us. Why do we have all this pain? Why do we have all this suffering? Why do we have all this killing? Why do we have all these tragedies that are happening? If he was really a deliverer, he would do something about all this stuff. And of course, our response is he did. He, he went to the cross. He, he lived in a perfect life for, for sinners like you and me. He, he died on the cross to make payment for sin that we should have been up there and, and made payment for. But he was our substitute. He did that for you and me. But they still like, well, okay, whatever, highly unlikely, because I still look around and see all the suffering and all the tragedy happening in the world. And this is crucial because this is what I then ask them. This is what I ask them. In the big picture of these things, these things are just symptoms of a much bigger problem. They're just a fruit of a much bigger problem. And this is what I mean. Say, take, take cancer. It, many of us have been touched by cancer. It's a brutal disease. It's, 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 it's brutal. It comes from the effect of sin. It's, it, it's just painful. It's devastating. It's brutal. But even if God cured all the cancer, people would still die from hunger. You say, okay, well, heal hunger. So even if God cured all the cancer and cured all the hunger, people would still die from what? Greed, envy, covetousness. And, and you can just go on and on and on and on. And what we find is we come to the greatest need, that these are just symptoms of a, a greater need. And the greater need is that we have a heart that's dark, Humanity has a heart that's hardened toward God and toward each other. And this is where our sin comes from. This is why James in James chapter 4 says, where are the rumors and wars come from? They come from your heart. And so we see the unlikely deliverer took care of our greatest need. He took care of our heart need. He came and died so that he may take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh so that we could see and follow Christ. He took care of of sin and death. That was our greatest need. And one day, as we will see, cancer will be eradicated. Hunger will be eradicated. Death will be no more. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the unlikely deliverer, came, and He delivered us from our greatest need, the, the need of saving us from sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, 54 says this, Death is swallowed up in victory, and death has no more sting. In Revelation chapter 21, it says this, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus, the ultimate unlikely deliverer, born in a manger, grew up in a carpenter family, came and took care of our greatest need the need that separated man from God, the need of sin and hard hearts. Again, we just celebrated Jesus, this baby in the manger. So how can we apply this? We can apply this by not leaving him in the manger. 
but sharing his testimony, just like we're sharing the testimony of Ehud right now, and sharing his testimony where we live with, work, and play with individuals and tell them about this unlikely deliverer that was sent from God for your friends, for your family, for you and me to deliver us from our greatest enemy, sin. So that's the first thing that we can learn. The second thing that we can learn is this, that Jesus still uses the unlikely to deliver people today. And those unlikely deliverers are you and me. That's who the Lord uses. We are his ambassadors. We are the unlikely deliverers of today. We are the Othniels. We are the Ehuds. 1 Corinthians one twenty six says this about us. For consider your calling. So right now, Paul is saying to you and me, consider your calling. Consider who you are in Christ. Consider what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon you and what you are called to be, i.e. witnesses and others. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to your worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world. He chose you and me. This describes us in here. Unlikely deliverers to to come in power to those who don't know Jesus, to awaken their souls to life, to grace, to love, to mercy. Ehud was a very unlikely candidate for a deliverer. Again, he wasn't even right-handed back in that day, right? But he chose to be obedient to the leading of the Spirit of God. And may that be us as well. May we choose to be obedient to the leading of the Spirit of God. Because here's what you know. Jesus is not looking to you for your ability. He's not looking to you for your ability. He's looking to you for your availability. You see, Jesus has all the ability that we need. He's fully capable of equipping you to be His witness to equipping me to be his ambassador. He's got ability covered. What he's looking for from you and me is our availability. He's looking for teachable. He's looking for humble hearts who have experienced the grace and the love and the joy of the gospel. He's looking for us to then spread it to those who don't yet have it. He's not looking for our ability. He's looking for our availability. We used to say this back when I was in ministry of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We used to call, he's looking for what we called fat C's. People that are faithful, available, teachable, and committed. That's what the Lord's looking for. Those that would submit their lives to His Spirit and to be about the ministry of the gospel. So here's the thing. Every one of us in here can be used, right? Now, He's not necessarily looking for you and me to save a nation, although he might. He might raise someone from him here to save this nation. But what he is looking for is he, he has called us, each one of us, to be used to save at least one person. And that's our prayer this year. Our prayer this year is that we would be focused and intentional on ministering to those who don't know Jesus. And that the Lord would use you and the Lord would use me to bring someone to Jesus in the year 2019. Because we know when that happens... Luke 15 says this, that all of heaven rejoices because one sinner has come to faith in Christ. All of heaven rejoices. I don't know about you, but I want to be about that mission. 
And I know your hearts too. You want to be about that mission as well. So what a great place to be this morning. What a great place to be is to know that the Lord is not looking for our ability. He's not looking for anything special for us. He's just looking for our availability. He's given us all that we need. He's given us His Word, the Gospel. He's given us His Spirit to empower us. He's given us a community to encourage us. And now we just have to go out those doors. What a great place. So this year, 2019, let's be intentional. Let's be purposeful in praying that the Lord, by the power of His Spirit, informed by His Word, would bring many sons and daughters to glory through you and through me, for His glory and our joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for these two great examples that You have given us. Lord, the the likely deliverer, Othniel, but also the unlikely, Ehud. We know He points us to the ultimate unlikely deliverer, Jesus Christ. Because of your love, grace, and mercy, Lord, everyone that walks on planet earth can be saved, can be delivered from their sin, from their hard heart. And Lord, you could do that in a multitude of ways, but the way you chose to do it is through your sons and daughters, everyone in this room who's named Christ as their Lord and Savior to be their ambassadors, to be your witnesses. So I pray that, that we do that, not only in word, but also in deed. Give us a a spirit of boldness. Give us a contagious and infectious lifestyle that raises the name of Jesus, His grace and His mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.